For those of you who are uh, visiting us this morning, uh, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Uh, we, we started in Genesis chapter 1 and uh, just working our way through this first book of the Bible. And uh, this morning we round out chapter 28. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22. Holy Scripture says, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. It is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would direct our attention to the transforming power of your grace. And I pray that you would light a fire in our hearts and glorify your name through our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, God's grace toward me was not in vain. God's grace intercepted Paul, the rebel, and transformed him into a faithful servant of the Lord. And that's what grace does. Grace impacts, transforms, and makes fruitful those who receive it. Divine grace generates a fitting response in the people who receive it. That's what happened in Paul's life, and that's what is happening in Jacob's life in Genesis chapter 28. The, the passage I read is Jacob's response to the vision and revelation that he received in verses 12 to 15. And it's important to understand the logical relationship between verses 12 to 15 and verses 18 to 22. First comes God's revelation to Jacob, and then comes Jacob's response. First comes God's gracious promise to Jacob, and then comes Jacob's reaction to it. Remember, Jacob is in the early stages of a 500-mile journey from, uh, from Beersheba in southern Canaan to Haran in Syria. He's been sent on this journey by his parents to escape his brother Esau, who wants to kill him, and also to find a wife among his extended family. And early in this journey, as we looked at last week, Jacob lays down to sleep, and while he is sleeping, he had a dream, and in that dream, the Lord revealed himself to Jacob. Jacob saw a ladder stretching from earth to heaven, and angels ascending and descending on 
the ladder, and the Lord stood forth. The heavens were opened, and the stage was set, and the Lord speaks. The Lord identifies himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. The Lord reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob and promises Jacob that he will become a great nation who will inherit the promised land. And through that great nation, the Lord will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And finally, the Lord declares in verse 15 that he is with Jacob and that he will, that he will preserve Jacob and he will not forsake Jacob, but he will fulfill all of his promises to him. And so when Jacob awoke from this remarkable dream and vision, he immediately recognized that he was, he'd been laying on holy ground. He said in verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. Jacob awoke and said these things right after the dream while it was still nighttime. And regardless of how much or how little time passed between verse 17 and verse 18, once early morning came, Jacob settled upon a deliberate response to the revelation that he had received. And Jacob's response to God's revelation to him can be understood in, in, in two, two parts. First, Jacob memorializes the place where the revelation occurred in verses 18 and 19. Remember, before he had gone to sleep the night before, Jacob had taken one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. Well, he may have put it under his head. The prepositional element that is translated under could also be translated at. So maybe Jacob utilized the stone as a pillow, or maybe, maybe he utilized it to form the head of his makeshift bed. Either way, the stone was a tangible part of the scene and had been near his head when the revelation took place. Now Jacob thought that it would be fitting to use the stone to commemorate and symbolize what had transpired that night. So he set up the stone as a pillar and consecrated it with oil. Now at this point in verse 18, we might assume that the stone pillar is functioning as an altar, but in Jacob's mind, it actually stands forth as a symbol of God's house, as we learn in verse 22. Of course, altar and house are not mutually exclusive. The stone pillar could function as an altar in God's house, a place of sacrifice in God's temple. The consecration of the stone pillar as a symbol of God's house coincides with the commemoration of the place with a name. Jacob may or may not have known that he was in the Canaanite city of Luz, which was the name of the place at the first, verse 19 tells us. Regardless, Jacob named the place Bethel, literally Beth-el, with Beth meaning house and El meaning God, Beth-el, house of God. You've heard of Bethlehem, house of bread. This is Bethel, the house 
of God. Therefore, both the name that Jacob gave the place as well as the stone pillar that he had set up were two ways of calling attention to the fact that God's house had descended upon him in that place the night before. Jacob sees the place as a temple in which he, a mere man on earth, had an encounter with the God of heaven. As as Jacob says in verse 17, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the first thing that Jacob did was to memorialize the place where the divine revelation occurred. Now, Now the second thing that Jacob does is he declares his devotion to the Lord in response to the Lord's grace in verses 20 to 22. Verse 20 begins, then Jacob made a vow. Now, the vow itself is focused on the promise that Jacob makes at the end of verse 22 when he promises to give a full tenth to the Lord. But all that Jacob says in verses 20 to 22 is connected to the vow. Before Jacob actually declares his vow to the Lord, he first describes his relationship with the Lord. Now, before we consider Jacob's words, remember the frame of mind that Jacob is in at this point. Jacob had just been overwhelmed and awestruck by the presence of the Lord, as indicated in verses 16 and 17. And then he has consecrated and designated the place as God's house in verses 18 and 19. So Jacob is in a worshipful frame of mind. He's in, a, he's in a, uh, an attitude of humble devotion to the Lord. And now starting in verse 20, Jacob recalls the personal promise that the Lord had just made to him. Jacob is standing in the Lord's promises. Notice how verse 20 and the first part of verse 21 echo what the Lord had promised him in verse 15. Look at verse 15. The Lord had promised Jacob in verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. And now Jacob recalls that promise in verses 20 and 21. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. The with me and keep me comments correspond exactly to what God had said in verse 15. And although God had not said anything specific about food and clothing, it is implied. And the Lord is with you, and the Lord is keeping you, and the Lord is sustaining you in all of your circuitous journeys until you end up where he wants you to be. He's obviously going to be furnishing you with provisions all along the way. After the children of Israel had lived in the wilderness for 40 years, They were told that the Lord had led them and the Lord had fed them with manna and the Lord did not let their clothing wear out. That's the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jacob understands 
that the Lord's protection and provision is aimed at his eventual return to the land, which for him means a return to his father's house. And to return there not in fragmentation, hostility, and fear of a divided house with a brother who wants to kill him, but to return there in peace, in shalom, in safety, with flourishing on all sides. Now, as we continue to probe Jacob's words in verses 20 to 22, the next thing that we see is that his own devotion to the Lord arises from the Lord's grace to him. Jacob's if-then reasoning makes this clear. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. The Lord's gracious promises to Jacob are foundational to the relationship and Jacob's devotion to the Lord is built on that foundation of the Lord's promise. Now I would caution against taking a negative view of Jacob's statement as some may be tempted to do. Some people might take the word if in an unnecessary direction as in, here you can get the feel for this, okay? If God will be with me and if God will keep me in this way that I go and if God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then after all that, if indeed God has done all that, then at such time in the future, then the Lord shall be my God. And then also after God has done all that, this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. That, that, that is a possible way of construing Jacob's words. But I doubt that that interpretation is on the right track. And here's, and here's one important reason why. When Jacob says in verse 22, this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, he is not predicting a mere future possibility. Instead, he is describing a present reality. He has already declared it plainly. This is none other than the house of God in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he set up the stone pillar as a symbol of God's house. And he named the place God's house. Jacob already believes that this is God's house. This stone that he already set up in the present moment already symbolizes the house of Almighty God. Now, he may well envision a return to Bethel, a return to the house of God at some time in the future when he returns to the land of Canaan, and there in God's house he may worship the Lord and offer a sacrifice to him. But even so, the statement, this stone shall be God's house, still describes a present reality with ongoing implications for the future. In like manner, I would argue that the preceding statement should be understood the same way. That the statement, the Lord shall be my God, describes a present reality for Jacob that has ongoing implications into the future. And so, 
from this moment forward, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac is now also the God of Jacob. The Lord shall be my God. So let me talk about this a little bit, a little bit more. Jacob's if-then statement does not have to be understood as a doubting Jacob postponing any commitment to the Lord until the Lord has fulfilled all of his words. There are other ways to understand Jacob's if-then statement. For example, the if-then statement may simply reflect the logical relationship between the Lord's promises to Jacob and Jacob's devotion to the Lord. The logical relationship is simple to understand. God's pledge to Jacob is foundational to Jacob's pledge to God, to Jacob's response of faith. Suppose a contractor stops by my house unannounced and identifies himself as no average contractor, but as one who has a long history of working on such houses as mine, and he promises to greatly improve my house. He will fix the siding. He will fix the walls. He will throw out new wings. He will revamp the basement. He will landscape the yard. Oh, contractor, where are you? <laughs> now suppose I believe every word that he said, and I am eager to cement the, the contractor-client relationship. And so suppose I say this, if you will do all these things that you said, so that you upgrade my modest house into a comfortable estate, then right now at this very moment before, you have, before you've done your first job, you shall be my contractor and this house shall be your worksite. You see? The, the, the if-then language communicates the logical relationship between his commitment to me and my commitment to him. My commitment to him arises from his integrity, his promise, his ability. Another way to capture the logical relationship of the if-then statement is to utilize the word since. In fact, in fact, the word that is translated if can legitimately be translated since. And, and think about how it sounds that way. Since God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. I think that might capture quite well what Jacob is attempting to say in these verses. Jacob believes God's promises, and because he believes God's promises, he is resolved to walk with the Lord and to remember the gracious promises that the Lord has revealed to him. Jacob's devotion to the Lord arises as a response to the Lord's grace to him. Finally, after restating the Lord's promises in verses 20 and 21 and describing his present devotion to the Lord in verses 21 and 22, Jacob finally proceeds to the actual vow. And notice that this is the only phrase in which Jacob is speaking directly to God, right? Up until now, Jacob has been speaking 
about the Lord and about his relationship with the Lord, but now he is speaking directly to the Lord, saying, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The, uh, the, the phrase, a full tenth, in the English Standard Version translation reflects the fact that Jacob is emphasizing giving a tenth by repeating the word for tenth. Jacob is basically saying, I will give you a tenth, a tenth. The, the repetition conveys emphasis. Jacob will surely give a tenth. Jacob will give a tenth indeed. Jacob will tithe a tithe. Tithe is a fancier word that simply means a tenth or 10%. Now, in order to appreciate Jacob's vow, it's important to understand that at this point in his life, he possesses almost nothing. Okay? He has left home and he's on his way to a foreign land. And 20 years later, when Jacob is on his way back to the promised land, he makes this statement in Genesis chapter 32, verse 10. He says, I am not wor-, he says to the Lord, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to me, your servant. For with, listen to, listen to this, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. When Jacob left Beersheba for Haran in Genesis 28.10, when Jacob made this vow to give a tenth of everything that the Lord gave him in verse 22, he had almost nothing except for the clothes on his back and a staff in his hand. But he anticipated that the Lord would furnish him, supply him, give to him, and he was resolved to honor the Lord's practical care by giving back to the Lord 10% of everything that the Lord gave him. For us readers of the book of Genesis, as we're journeying through, does that giving a tenth of everything ring a bell in your head? In Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Just as Abraham the man of faith gave a tenth of everything to the king of righteousness. So will Jacob, the man of faith, give a tenth of everything to the Lord. And by the way, let, let no one be tempted to belittle the size of Jacob's promised gift. It's important to say that giving a tenth is not small potatoes. It is not an insignificant gift. The Lord gives to us in order that we might be sustained in our everyday physical lives in this world. The Lord expects that we will use a lot of what He gives to us for the maintenance and care of our households. When 20 years later, when Jacob is coming back into the land of Canaan, he's become two camps. He has servants. 
He has two wives and two concubines and 11 sons and one daughter and a lot of livestock. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of bodies to clothe. He needs tents and resources and tools to do life. And, and, and the Lord expects him to use what the Lord has given him to take care of his people. Don't, don't ever miss that. The Apostle Paul gave this instruction to Christians in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we, as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul said, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yes, of course, we want to hold everything that we have with an open hand and be willing to part with anything at the Lord's direction. But in the ordinary course of life, the thick and thin of life, the Lord expects that we will use vast amounts of our resources to provide for the reasonable care of our families and extended families. And yet... And yet that the Lord has designed life to work in such a way also that we take a meaningful and substantial part of what he gives us and we give it back to him. Not because he needs it, but as a way to demonstrate to him and to demonstrate to our families and to demonstrate to the world that he is our savior and sustainer and the one that we honor above all else. How do you give to the Lord? Well, generally speaking, giving material gifts to the Lord, it effectively and practically means giving material gifts to support the ministry of the Word, the advance of the gospel, the maintenance and care of the church, the relief of the poor, orphans and widows, especially those within the household of faith. We give because he first gave to us. And out of everything he gives us, we give. Now, let me make two applications from this text. First, God's grace brings about our devotion to him. When we looked at verses 10 to 17 last week, the application I attempted to drive home is, is that when it comes to having covenant fellowship with the living God, when it comes to you having a personal relationship with the Lord of heaven, the Lord is the one who must graciously initiate and establish that fellowship. You don't just decide to, I'm going to start having a relationship with the Lord today. It, it, it doesn't work like that. Jacob was sleeping, on his, you know, taking a break on his journey, and the Lord showed up. But the other side of the coin is that whenever the Lord does graciously initiate and establish fellowship with a sinful human being like you or me, that sinful human being must consciously stand in the Lord's grace and pledge his or her loyalty to the Lord. And you need to clearly understand this pattern and this order. First, the Lord bestows his lavish grace upon us. And second, that lavish grace impacts us and generates in us 
a fitting and grateful response to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're frustrated with yourself because you, you just think, man, I just, I just can't, I can't muster up devotion to the Lord. I'm, I'm dull. There's just not much there. What am I supposed to do? Fake it? No. No. <laughs> look, look back to the Lord's grace. Look back to Scripture. Look back to God's promises. Your devotion to the Lord is only going to arise as you are interacting with the grace of God given to you, which he talks about in his word. And by the way, the whole Bible is structured this way. The Ten Commandments is structured this way. Before the Lord tells the Israelites what to do, where does he start? He starts with a preamble of grace. He says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Redemption precedes an obedient response. Turning to the New Testament, we learn that God's mercies come first. As we taste and internalize God's mercies, we then offer ourselves in willing service to the Lord. Paul wrote in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's the foundation, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual wor worship. And similarly, in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, Paul wrote, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen, we don't decide to live for the Lord as a strategy to get the Lord to be gracious to us. That would be to put the cart before the horse. And that cart is not going to heaven. Instead, we yield ourselves to the Lord in response to the lavish grace that he's already given us. Worshiping and obeying and serving and giving to the Lord is not a way to get God's favor. Instead, worshiping and obeying and serving and giving to the Lord with joy is how we demonstrate our faith and confidence in the Lord's favor to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, vanquished the grave, and was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that sinners like you and me might leave the darkness behind and walk with the Lord in the land of the living. Like Jacob, we declare our loyalty to the Lord. The Lord shall be my God, and we live accordingly all in response to his gracious promises. I want to ask you a question. Have God's gracious promises overtaken your heart? Yes or no? Promises like these. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 10. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you, Isaiah 44, verse 22. I will be merciful toward your iniquities, and I will remember your sins no more, Hebrews 8, 12. I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's promise and God's promises enlarge our hearts to live for him. Let me make one more application from this passage. And let me just let me just put it this way. We are looking forward to a better and permanent Bethel. A better and permanent house of God. Okay, so just bear with me for a few more minutes here. I think, I think this is a really beautiful promise from Scripture that we can see in light of Genesis 28. For those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, for those who stand firm in God's promises and strive to honor the Lord in their everyday lives, a remarkable promise awaits us. And this remarkable promise is remarkable in how it surpasses the experience that Jacob had in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob's experience in Genesis chapter 28 is a foretaste of something better and permanent. In Genesis 28, the Lord appeared to Jacob in a dream and revealed his faithful covenant promises to Jacob. Jacob, in response, now listen carefully, in response, he set up a pillar as a symbol of God's house and he named the place House of God. Now with that in mind, listen to the Lord's promise to every one of his faithful servants who stays true and holds fast to the gospel. This is the Lord's promise. He says this, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Revelation 3.12. You see, it was never really about a physical location. It's not about stone pillars and buildings and GPS coordinates. It's always primarily about the Lord calling people into fellowship with Himself. It's always primarily about the Lord transforming sinful human beings into grateful worshipers who fill God's house with unending praise. In fact, it's about grateful worshipers who are God's house with the God of heaven dwelling among them forever. You can forget about that stone pillar in Bethel. And you can forget Bethel as the name of a geographic location. You, faithful believer, will be a pillar in God's living house. You, faithful Christian believer, will dwell in God's living house forever. forever. And you'll never have to depart from the glory and light of God's presence. You, Christian believer, will have God's name written on you and God's city name written on you and the Messiah's new name written on you. 
You will be defined by and incorporated into God's eternal house forever. The gateway to heaven shall give way to a beautiful union and communion between heaven and earth as the heavenly city descends upon the new earth and the Lord shall dwell in the midst of his redeemed people forever. And you'll never have to leave this better and permanent Bethel. Brothers and sisters, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is to touch our hearts, transform our lives, revive our spirits, sustain us in trials, help us to cling to your promises and always keep before us the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.